from the Yakima tribe. Before the tribes lived peaceably in this country, before the last creation, there were certain people who ate natives wherever they could get them. They preferred the taste of children, especially infants. These people, the Tataklea, were taller and larger than the common human. They ate every bad thing known, such as frogs, lizards, snakes, and other things that natives don't normally eat. They talked the language and in that way might fool the natives. There were five of them, all sisters. But at the last creation, they appeared only in California. Two were seen there. They were women, tall, big women who lived in a cave. At one time, the Shasta tribe was digging roots and camping. They knew that the Tataklea were about, were in that place. They were careful, but the Tataklea caught one little boy. They didn't catch him to eat, but to raise him up and live with them. The boy thought he would be killed, but he was not. The Tataklea had him for several days. One day, when they were out of sight, the boy hurried away. He ran fast, traveled over rough, wild places, and at last reached his own people. After many years, the two Tataklea were destroyed. No one knew how, but perhaps by a higher power. Their cave home became red hot and blew out. The monster women were never seen again, never more heard from but they have always been talked about as the most dangerous beings on earth. The other of the five sisters was drowned. From her eye, all owls were created. The person who killed her said to her as she was dying, from now on, your eye will be the only part of you to act. At night, it will go to a certain bird so that she may see and keep watch over the night, the sacred owl. This is Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'm a storyteller, a writer, and a creative muse. And today I'm moving into the dark shadows of Mother Nature, the places that don't always feel so soft and romantic. One thing about living in the woods is that it's not always so sweet and peaceful and drama-free. I can live without drama in big cities and suburbs simply by isolating myself and never leaving my living space, but that's not possible out here. Depending on the weather, keeping nature from taking over your living territory, competing with local wildlife for space, sometimes it gets kind of brutal. Sometimes you've got to sleep with one eye open, depending on where you're sleeping. I was hiking one morning. Such a beautiful morning. I learned to really cherish when the sun came up, and that time became precious to me, because it was a break from the things that go bump in the night, or rather screaming to its violent death in the night. Mountain lions are not so far away. Bears are just over the ridge. Snakes are everywhere. And when I first moved here, there was a feral cat colony with a lot of sick animals that kept getting attacked and eaten. The predators were being drawn and attracted here from all over the place, and it became a hub of good eating. 
A new litter of kittens wouldn't last a day. Since then, I've cleaned it up, and the person who was letting these cats breed out of control took them away. But the predators still visit every night, looking for anything they can get into. And so when the day breaks, it's a really good feeling. The things that try breaking into the house go back to their dens and go to sleep. The things that make little creatures scream are on down the road now somewhere. And I don't have as many serial killer weasels on my immediate territory as I used to, hunting down everything in their path. Weasels are crazy killing machines if you didn't already know that. So I was walking one morning. My dog was with me. She was still a puppy at the time, and she hadn't started leaving home yet and getting into trouble, getting me into trouble. And we ran into a wild turkey and her babies. Well, of course, my dog went wild. The turkey, in order to save herself, grabbed up one of her babies, flew around my dog to get her attention, got the dog to chase her away from the original nest, and then she did something horrific. She dropped her baby down to my dog so she could fly away free. My dog grabbed the sacrificial baby in her mouth, and it was dead in two seconds. The mother turkey had sacrificed one of her young in order to save herself and the rest, and it gave me a good, hard reminder that nature wasn't exactly a Disney movie. There's this esoteric wheel that's rotating forever in a cycle. Life is made up of good things and bad things, and it's not for us to control so much. The universe exists to survive. We all spin together, subjected to both kingdoms and slavery, back and forth, forward and backward, up and down, spinning away with our cycles and our changes. The planet spins, a circular mass of life and death, its own body restrained and bound to eternally cycle a larger body with a stronger gravitational field, the sun. The mornings turn on the lights. The day warms up, then night falls, cooling everything back down again and sending us back into darkness, a cycle of activity and rest. And this wheel is forever and represents so many different cycles, which all work somehow on this crazy circular concept, spinning wheels, the wheel of change. It's pretty amazing to think about the cycles of creation and death and reincarnation, unless you're the one being eaten or going through some dark change. But as cruel and heartless as these things may be, they're a part of life and creation. They're a part of us. Without darkness, there's no light. Without evil, there's no goodness. Polar opposites exist everywhere and in everything, and inside you and me. It makes all this a little bit easier to take by looking at it through a different eye, to be a little more tolerant of the everyday ups and downs that upset most people, and start to see that those things have longer-term meanings, and there's a purpose to those things. It's an exercise in patience and letting go of the need to control everything. You can't control everything. 
You don't have to control everything. Everything around you is operating on its own wheel, and eventually it's going to pass from its current phase into another one. For all you know, maybe it'll work itself out in a way that you're happy with one day, or maybe not. And in that case, trying to control somebody else's wheel of life usually only speeds it up anyway. It doesn't necessarily make things turn out the way you'd like. We've all got to let each other ride out their own wheels. The darker side of nature has its own unique set of resources. Death and decay is considered part of that dark side, right? And death is something that we use constantly. You can use the decay and decomposition of of corn plant material to make your own ethanol and fuel things like tractors and cars or have an endless supply of fuel for lamps and lanterns. It's an energy source that burns 20% cleaner than fossil fuel because it uses oxygen in its molecular structure, which means it's going to emit way less carbon monoxide and hydrocarbons. And you can do this in your backyard with an acre of corn and be supplied for years. Just modify your engines to use it, and congratulations, you've just become a little more independent and self-sufficient. Decay is important. I don't like watching the process or smelling it, but the gases it emits are reliable. The carbon it provides is vital for life, new and old life. Predatory behavior is never easy to watch, but without it, there wouldn't be a thousand other species that this earth needs to keep her going. The process of decomposition of a kill changes, spinning around like that cosmic wheel again. In the beginning, the carcass feeds several different sets of animals and bacteria, Then the body environment changes as the decay progresses, and it becomes foul and not appetizing to those guys anymore, and attracts a new set of species, and so on and so on, until finally it enters this dry decay stage that only predatory beetles can handle. One decomposing carcass provides so much food and energy and shelter for some for so many different forms of life, and eventually food for the earth, spawning things that we find more attractive again, like flowers, and then there's mushrooms. Beautiful, extraordinary mushrooms. The plant that was so unique that it got recategorized as an animal. It's now considered part of the animal kingdom. There's a breed of mushrooms that will eat away oil spills and filter out all that pollution, returning the groundwater back to normal. Well, pseudo-normal. We've perverted almost everything to a point where it's going to be hard to get it back. There's several different species of mushroom that are bioluminescent. And I'm not talking about foxfire. These are sizable mushrooms. They're native to places like Brazil and the Amazon, not that tiny, packed, bacterial-looking, glowing stuff that you find under rocks and down in caves. No. Full-on mushrooms growing up above the surface in broad daylight and not hiding in a rock somewhere. And they glow. They look like something out of a crazy psychedelic trip. 
They work on a circadian cycle. They turn on their lights when the sun goes down. They're down in the jungles, far back in the deepest parts, and to hunt for them is disorienting. And that design could very well be on purpose. Mushrooms have to spread their spores. The light attracts insects that do the job for them so they can feed in different, more widespread areas of the jungle. But back to filtering, mushrooms do a fantastic job of cleaning up oil spills, filtering out fuel pollution, cleaning up stormwater runoff from landfills. They clean and filter contaminated soil. It's even a cheaper alternative to commercial environmental cleanups, but we rarely use it. Why? Because they work slowly, really slowly. And governmental regulation has time frames that mushrooms don't work well with. Mycology is also a very neglected science. The research doesn't get much money. So it falls on citizens and people who study this stuff in their garages and on a personal level to figure out how to use it. So most of the time, the only people who are using mushrooms for environmental cleanups are doing it at a small community level, smaller projects, smaller localized groups of people. On decomposition, I was walking again with my dog through the woods one morning and I saw something bright red down the hillside. My dog lit out and I knew it was a carcass, so bright red that it had to be fresh. Turns out it was a kill of a poacher. They'd taken the antlers off a deer and left the rest of it just lying there, cut open and mutilated haphazardly. And just enough of the meat cut out to grill maybe a small steak. It was a mess, and it was rotting out there in the open. And as much as I was disgusted to see this kind of disrespect, I did get the chance to watch what happened to that carcass. The person who owned the land I found it out was called. They weren't happy about it, and they claimed they'd be cleaning it up, but they never did. It just laid there. I'm sure nobody thought it would be mentioned again. I'm about the only person around here who goes sneaking off into the woods, and I'm pretty quiet about it. I see a lot, and I continue to go visit this carcass every day and watch the progress of events that begin to happen because I have this, you know, crazy, dark, interesting, creeping things, I guess. I'm a very curious person, but the first wave was the coyotes and the bigger mammals, We do have mountain lions. Maybe one of those were involved. I don't know. But it's usually the the coyotes that feed first, along with giant vultures. And the meat was cleaned out in about one day flat. Nature took care of that in a sprint. It was over so quick. I learned that if you were a scavenger, you'd better fight to get to a fresh kill quick or it would be gone. There was just bone and hide left when I went back to see it several days later. And it was the tiny things picking and pecking away at it. Beetles, ants, the bacteria that lives in our guts, in animals too. And that's interesting stuff. Those bacteria that live in us and are just waiting for us to drop dead. We're in a constant battle with this bacteria every day of our lives. And we call it an infection when we lose a temporary battle with them. 
but we're still alive and we can keep those bacteria under control with medicines and poison and the right food. And then one day it's our turn to die and those bacteria are finally free to have a feast. It didn't take this carcass long to go through its wet decomposition stage, given the weather in my neck of the woods. It's wet and humid here, year-round. The weather patterns have changed since the earth has shifted on its axis. We're getting the weather of, of rainforests lately, I am not lying, and things break down and change quick. I've even noticed some creatures migrating this way that I've never seen in this area before. Everything is changing, and I can see it, and I can feel it on the air as I live right in the heart of it. And we need constant transformation. We need change. This regeneration is what keeps us healthy and alive. The living needs the dead. We don't eat happy, alive things. We pick plants to death. We chop them up to pieces, and we cook them. We pull up mushrooms by their living roots and eat them in our stir-fries and our salads. Most of us don't even drink living water. We shock the hell out of it first. We consume things that are dead or dying. We need the nutrients of other things that were once alive. Dogs kill cute bunny rabbits and tear their heads off. Weasels and ferrets turn their kills inside out, peeling their skin back and down and eating the animal from the neck down. Birds, sweet singing birds, steal the eggs of other birds and eat them. Some of them raid other birds' nests and eat their screaming babies. Our dark side, along with the dark side of our mother, nature, is there. It always will be. And our death was really meant to sustain the life of something else until we kind of stopped all that up with sealed coffins and formaldehyde. But some people are looking into more natural burial methods, like those tree pod things. I'm actually thinking of having that done. I think it would be kind of nice to feed a tree. We're all a part of each other. We're stuck here together. For better or worse, we're all kind of married to each other. What one of us does on one side of the world affects a bunch of people who affect another bunch of people, and that makes its way to our front door. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the blood that we share, it's all recycled over and over again. And this is why we need to cooperate once in a while instead of constantly fighting each other every step of the way when there's some big problem, like a virus that's sweeping through the world. We're everyone a part of that ebb and flow, and it's moving forever together, like the waves of an ocean. This has been Natural and Wild with me, Christine Grayson. I'd like to thank my bigger sponsors, Sheila McGregor, Chris Nolan, Bruce Presson, Arnold Bloom, and someone who'd like to remain anonymous. I'm thanking you anyway. Thank you to my tippers to the virtual tip jar this week. And for those of you who listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review for me there. I hope everybody stays happy and healthy. Have a fun weekend and come back next week 
fresh and ready for another weird show of mine.